Hello and welcome to What on Earth, the podcast of the Environmental Investigation Agency or EIA. I'm Paul Newman, EIA Senior Press and Communications Officer and today, the 7th of September, is the United Nations International Day of Clean Air for Blue Skies. Its theme this year is The Air We Share. So why are we here to talk about methane emissions? To answer that and much more, I'm joined by Kim O'Dowd, a campaigner working in our climate team. Kim, welcome and thanks for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. Hi Paul, thanks for having me. So, why are we here to talk about methane emissions? So, um, I think it's particularly important to talk about methane uh, in this uh, in this day because um, so methane is a short-lived pollutant. Um, it's actually 86 times more powerful than CO2 over a 20-year period. Um, we know now that it is responsible for about 25% of global warming experience today. But on top of being extremely climate damaging, it has uh, also very, uh, a very harmful aspect for human health. Uh, methane emission contributes to the formation of tropospheric ozone, which is a harmful air pollutant, which causes various health problems contributing to illnesses and premature death. Uh, actually, cutting methane emission by 45% would have the potential to prevent 255 1,000 uh, premature deaths and 775 asthma-related um, hospital visits each year. Wow, so those are not inconsiderable numbers. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's huge, and and the good thing is we we can cut those emissions because uh, we know where they come from. Um, methane, so can come from natural sources, uh, from being trapped in the permafrost. But around sixty percent of methane emission come from human activities, uh, and those anthropic methane emission come from agriculture, waste, and the energy sector. Uh, agriculture represents about forty percent of those anthropic uh, methane emission. Energy about thirty five and waste 20%. So agriculture is always the most famous one because we know it's related to cows, uh, but it actually also comes from uh, rice cultivation. Uh, on the energy sector, it comes from the extraction, the processing, and um, the transport of oil, gas, and coal. And waste, it comes from landfills or uh, sewer treatments. Yeah, and why does EIA's climate campaign focus specifically on the methane emissions that come from the energy sector as opposed to, say, farting cows and all the other things that produce it? The energy sector has been identified as actually the main contributor to the rapid acceleration of atmospheric methane. Um, even if we know that methane emissions from the energy sector are chronically underreported, so we can imagine that the scale is even bigger. And in a very big report called the Global Methane Assessment, which was produced by the UN and the Clean Air Coalition, they have found that Currently available measures could reduce methane emission across all sectors by as, by as much as 45% by 2030, but half of those measures would actually come from the fossil fuel sector, in which it is really relatively easy to reduce methane emission, um, and with the majority of those measures uh, being available at negative cost or low cost. Um, this fact has also been confirmed by the International Energy Agency that has found that curbing methane emission is the most effective means available for limit limiting global warming in the near term, uh, which is particularly true in the oil and gas sector, where it is possible to avoid more than 70% of current emission uh, with existing technology, uh, and where about 45% could be avoided at no net cost. Well, I, I guess tackling methane um, would make a major impact because it's such a short-lived climate gas. It hasn't got that huge lifespan in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm, exactly, yeah. It's considered as the low-hanging fruit of uh, climate change. So we should get picking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> how, how does methane um, actually get from the energy sector into the atmosphere? Is it is it deliberately done or is it accidental? 
It's a bit of both. Um, in the energy sector, methane emission, where they come from either being vented and fled or from an international, an international uh, leaks. Um, I'm going to get a bit more into venting and flaring because I, 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 it's a bit technical, but it's actually very interesting. So it's, it's a practice that is used along the whole supply chain. Uh, it can either, either be used for uh, gas pipelines, but also for oil pipelines where gas is considered as a byproduct. Uh, what happened is that the gas is uh, either released, so that's venting, or burnt, that's flaring, in the atmosphere. Uh, the reason behind both flaring and venting may be uh, related to safety, economics, operational uh, expediency, or a combination of all three. Um, and gas is primarily, primarily methane, so that means that you release intentionally methane in the atmosphere. And those practices can have actually a very big impact on human health. So it's very uh, relevant to talk about this today. Um, flares uh, emit a host of air pollutants. Uh, they depend on the chemical composition of the gas that's been burned. But to name a few, there's benzene, propylene, hexane. Um, researchers in Canada actually found that more than 60 air pollutants uh, can come from uh, fossil gas flares. And those, the exposition to these uh, gases can create many, many health damages. And, and, and venting is the same. Uh, it's just releasing gas in the atmosphere with other very hazardous uh, air pollutants. Um, but like to add, like, flaring is also very important for another reason, and extremely damaging for human health and biodiversity. Because when, when, you, when you burn gas, um, it increases the ground temperature. Uh, which can cause a decline in, in for example, uh, crop yields. Um, studies have revealed that there's an almost 100% loss in yield of all crops cultivated about 200 meters away from the flaring station, a 45% loss for those about 600 meters away, and a 10% loss in yield for crops uh, one kilometer away from the flare. And it's actually very common that habitation or, or um, agriculture fields are close to, to uh, flaring stations. Um, the other thing that it can, it can create is heat stroke. Uh, in, it's, that's particularly true in countries where temperature are already very high, such as Nigeria, which is a, a very important oil and gas producer. And, and this is due to the heat actually given off by the burning fossil fuel itself, the, yeah, the BEC exactly. burning. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And, and, and how many of these um, if I were fl venting and flaring stations are actually located near agricultural land? Uh, I couldn't. I couldn't tell. Give you a, a particular number because it's actually something that. Um we can see a bit by satellite uh, data, but there's a company called uh, Flare Intel that does an incredible job at trying to identify big flaring events uh, with satellite data, and you can actually access for free the map on their website, and you can explore a bit, and you can you can see that if you if you look at all those big yellow orange dots, it's close to cities. So I, I do not know the number, the exact number, but it's a very common practice. And as well as venting and flaring, I gather there's also a problem regarding unintentional leaks um, from the energy sector and so-called fugitive emissions. Well, what exactly are these and where do they come from? So um, that, that, that second source of, of uh, methane from, from oil and gas is uh, basically unintentional leaks. So what happens is on pipelines or on LNG terminals or from wells and mines, them being active or closed or abandoned, there's going to be leaks. It's going to be holes on the pipeline. It's going to be uh, something that's not f uh, properly fixed. Um, and these happen absolutely everywhere in the world because the world is covered, unfortunately, with 
oil and gas pipelines. And again, satellites can be a very good tool to spot those. And some of those events are emitting extremely high number of, of uh, emissions. Um, to name a few, uh, in July 2021, so quite recently, um, there was a, a massive major leak that was spotted on a pipeline in Iraq. Um, it re released methane at a rate of 73 tons of an hour. So to give you a bit of an idea, it's as uh, the same planet warming impact of more than 200,000 cars in the UK. And that was just for a few hours. Um, or other example, in Russia, uh, there was recently in January 2022, the biggest uh, flaring, uh, biggest le leaking event in the world in a coal mine. Uh, it happens also in Australia, uh, in Algeria. So basically, everywhere in the world, you're going to find those massive emitting events. But it's not has to be always massive events. It can be also just very small leaks on pipelines. And um, those ones you can see thanks to OGI cameras. Um, colleague from the organization Cleaner Task Force uh, have been going around Europe to expose those leaks. They have inspected more than 250 oil and gas facilities in about 11 countries and have recorded 433 shocking methane emission sources. And, and again, those facilities, it's like for flying and, and venting, they are very close to habitation. Uh, they, are, they are in residential neighborhoods. And that can be very scary when you think that just those people are going to just breathe those, those, those methane emissions that can be very harmful for, um, for our, our health. Um, but there's an, another aspect of, as well of those, of those in, unintentional leaks, and those come from abandoned wells and coal mines, uh, which can continue emitting methane uh, when they are not properly sealed or closed. Um, the thing is, we don't really know how much there, there, is, uh, there are of those wells in, in Europe. It's very hard to, to, uh, to know exactly exactly where they are located and how many they are and how much methane emission they, they, they emit. But it's something that has to be done, a, a strong monitoring. But in the US, there's estimate that shows there's around 3.2 million abandoned oil and gas wells, uh, which together emitted 281 kilotons of methane just in 2018. Uh, this is like consuming around 60 million barrels of crude oil. And the actual numbers of those wells could actually be as much as three times higher because it's it's probably, they probably don't have uh, the, the whole data. And and the the, the threat that that, that 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 causes to the to, to climate is is not only that problem because leaks from abandoned wells can contaminate groundwater and soils and so in some extreme cases they can cause explosion because the, the gas is trapped uh, in Ohio and Texas. Uh, state regulators have each found that an average of around two groundwater contamination incidents per year are related to orphan wells, um, and, and those leaks mean that there's a permanent exposition to, mer uh, to methane in, in various communities, which have extremely important health impacts. And, and, and again, here we're only talking about the, the impact that the direct methane leaks and, and flaring event have, but that's without talking about just the impact that global warming will have on our communities all around the world. And, and it's still already, happen is, uh, is already happening uh, if we don't cut those methane emissions. But that would be a subject for a whole new podcast, I guess. <laughs> yeah, obviously, climate change itself is, is, is a big problem. With it. I mean, it's a very vicious cycle in that human-released um, methane um, is obviously driving climate change along with other components 
Um, and as the world warms, then permafrost melts, and in the permafrost is trapped another great reservoir of methane around the world. Exactly. Um, which is only going to make things worse. Yeah. So, okay, ultimately, you know, identifying a problem is really only the first step towards addressing it. Um, what can we actually do about methane emissions for the, for the energy sector? Okay, so now we're going to go towards a bit of a more positive aspect, is that we actually can do something about it, and we know how to do it. Um, well, first, obviously, when we talk about uh, methane emission from the energy sector, that means methane emission from the oil, gas, and coal sector. And you cannot actually stop methane emission from the energy sector as long as you continue extracting, producing, transporting fossil fuels. So the, the actual way of cutting methane emission is stopping the production of, of, of those fossil fuels. And actually, if we talk again about a bit about health, um, phase out, phasing out of fossil fuel could lead to avoid 3.6 million deaths per year worldwide from outdoor air pollution. Uh, and the reduction in premature death and disease could also uh, lead to lessening healthcare cost and and that means more funds to to for public policies to promote good health or promote uh, renewable energy systems etc but so that's that for long term we need to to phase out fossil fuels but in the meantime while we work on that there are things that can be done uh, and put in place to mitigate methane emission um, and those are first uh, systems to leak uh, to detect leak and repair them uh, which consist of inspect inspecting uh, oil and gas facilities using uh, ogi cameras um, or monitoring sensors aircraft drones and satellites and there's more and more technology to do that and and the more often you do that, the more efficient. If you do an annual survey, you can reduce emission by 40%. If you do quarterly surveys, you can reduce 80% of those emissions, and monthly survey, 90% of, uh, of those emissions. So it's extremely, extremely uh, efficient. Uh, the th second thing that you can do to, to mitigate methane emission in the energy sector is banning routine venting and flaring. Uh, it's the technique that I mentioned earlier. It's extremely damaging for the environment, for our health, for our local communities, for the biodiversity. And it's actually just a practice that doesn't have any benefit. It's uh, it's also just a waste of gas because the gas that they are releasing could just be used to uh, to to to. It's it's gas that could be used without having to extract more. So you could just like cap it and 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 sell it again. Um, third um, technique is also capping and sealing all those inactive wells and abandoned coal mines. So obviously first you have to put in place strong um, um, monitoring programs where you will identify all those wells. But then there's also again techniques that are to make sure that those wells uh, do not leak anymore. And fourthly the the last one that is a bit more technical, but it's it, it's adopting technology standards. Um, basically, it, it would encourage replacing some equipment that leak by design for equipment that perform uh, the same, but with uh, lower or zero emission. And all those techniques are available, are already used by the industry. And it's just we have to promote by public policies the make them mandatory because it's just it's just a question of, of a bit of motivation and because uh, again most of measures can be implemented at very low cost or net zero cost so there's no reason that we shouldn't do it uh, like right now. Briefly, what would the impact likely be on um, the, the the energy industry and sector if, if if venting and flaring were stopped? I mean, what's actually stopping them from doing it now, and what would the implications of stopping them have for the sector? Would, would it be a massive cost 
um, to them, or is it just a, a minor thing that they could fix if they wanted to? No, it's actually something that they could fix. And there's the, for example, the World Bank has a program. They work with uh, oil and gas company and with countries to implement bans on 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 flaring by 2030. So there's there's even additional funding from 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 public organi from organization that can help industries and countries to put that in place. But also, there's actually studies, more and more studies that show that. Banning venting and flaring and, and also an, an international, international uh, sorry, it's a very hard word to pronounce. Uh, um, leaks can be can be can mean saving money. Um, there's a very interesting study that was published by Kipterio that I mentioned earlier for the flaring and satellites thing uh, that showed that if all leaks and were fixed. Um, well, if all the methane that was leaking uh, from initial leaks from venting and flaring in North Africa, and that, that methane, that gas was saved, then and, and then sell to Europe, the Europe could start subsidizing 15% uh, of Russian gas between in 12 to 24 months, because it's just gas that is released, and it's a, it's just a, it's just a waste, and and you could sell that, and and you can sell that without having to extract more, which means that you can save money, and then countries could just start uh, going towards more sustainable. Like they have additional funding, so they could invest those money in, in more sustainable uh, sources of energy. So it basically significantly reduce the amount of fossil fuels we're pulling out of the ground in the first place and actually making those we do pull out have a purpose rather than just throwing them away into the atmosphere to become a major problem. Okay, um, in, in EIA's uh, climate campaign, what, what's been the focus um, of your work so far and, and what do you anticipate uh, as the next um, thing we're going to focus on? So right now we are very focused on the EU methane regulation. So in December 2021, the European Commission released a text called the EU methane regulation in the energy sector, uh, which puts in place a framework on monitoring, reporting and verification, leak detection and repair, bans on routine venting and flaring, uh, capping and sealing all well, so basically the, the measure that I was talking about earlier um, in Europe. But the problem is, and, and that's really the big flaw of this regulation, is that the text only takes into account uh, the gas, oil and coal that is produced within the EU and the pipelines that are within the EU. But the problem is that the EU imports over 97% of the oil, 90% of the gas, and 70% of the coal it consumes, consumes, which means that most of methane emission associated with EU consumption are emitted long before reaching EU borders. Um, actually, the EU imports over half of all globally traded fossil gas, which means that they are big driver of methane emission in this sector. So what we are working on right now, and the text right now is, is being discussed in, uh, by the, the Council and the European Parliament, is to make sure that this regulation, this framework, is applied on the whole supply chain, including on imports. And to come back to the theme of this day, um, uh, which is uh, which is clean air? They have a focus this year on the air we share. Uh, they want to focus on the the, the, the transboundary nature of air pollution, uh, highlighting the need for coll collective accountability and collective action. And I'm, I think it's very relevant when we talk about this EU methane regulation because the EU has to take a responsibility for the methane emission that emitted before reaching the EU's border, but that are caused by EU's demand. So that's our focus. We can't just accept the supply chain being a, a fault and then just fix it when it gets to us we need to make sure it's upstreamed 
Exactly, upstream, yeah. And and also we are focused, uh, especially with COP coming up uh, in a few months, on the international side. Uh, at last COP, the, the, there was the announcement of the Global Methane Pledge, uh, which is a voluntary initiative for countries to globally reduce methane emission by 30%. And we are looking to, to make this uh, Global Methane Pledge turn into something that would be more binding with national action uh, planned. Uh, so this is in the process uh, as well because uh, methane should really be a priority for all policymakers because it's one of the very efficient way of making sure that we stay within 1.5. And uh, finally, um, what about other short-lived pollutants um, such as hydrofluorocarbons, uh, more commonly known by the shortened version of HFCs, which are another focus of, of our climate campaign? Do they also constitute a threat to human life? Yeah, to, to completely. Um, so actually, so, so you mentioned HFCs. Uh, that's very relevant when we talk about health. Um, because right now we are seeing a huge rise in the use of ACs, air conditioners, worldwide, uh, with an estimated 5.6 billion, billion to be used by 2050. Uh, that is uh, one AC unit sold every 10 seconds for the next 30 years. Uh, and the, the, in order to cool your house or, or office, uh, the hot air extracted by the AC unit has to go somewhere. And it's vented outside the buildings, uh, creating what's known as heat island effect. Um, Build-up cities with lots of AC units uh, running can have temperature up to 12 degrees higher than surrounding more uh, rural areas. This higher temperature in cities also mean that the demand for AC in cities become even higher as a result. So it's it's just a it's an infinite loop. Uh, increased demand for AC means increased power plant emission to run them, and that means increased carbon pollution. Um, and while, while AC worsens air quality, uh, their cousin, uh, the heat pump can actually reduce air pollution. Uh, this is because they are replacing gas, gas boilers with produced nitrogen dioxide, which is an air pollutant linked to tens of thousands death of, of early death a year in the UK. Uh, heat pumps are driven by electricity, uh, so there's no combustion and therefore no point of use in nitrogen dioxide or sulfur dioxide emission. Um, however, right now, many heat pumps on the market run on HFCs, which are extremely damaging for the climate. So opting for a natural refrigerant heat pump will protect air quality and the climate. Um, as uh, climate damaging HFCs are being phased down worldwide, uh, the large chemical manufacturing companies are replacing them with a new family of synthetic refrigerants, which have a lower global warming impact than HFCs, but have potentially worrying health impact for people and the planet. Uh, they produce chemicals, which are called PFAS, uh, which are persistent, bioaccumulative, and toxic, and are being found in bodies of water, in food, in drinking water, and also even in human blood. Uh, um, PFS contaminate groundwater, surface water, and soil. And actually, a recent study from the University of Stockholm found that rainwater almost everywhere on Earth is unsafe to drink due to the presence of these chemicals. So ending the use of all these harmful uh, synthetic refrigerants by switching to natural refrigerants or systems with no refrigerants can have great benefit for the health of people, for ecosystems, and for 
the planet. Uh, the global phase-out of CFCs under the Montreal Protocol has resulted in an estimate of $1.8 trillion in health benefit through the avoidance of skin cancer and $46 billion, billion in avoided damages to agriculture, fisheries and materials between 1987 and 260. That's massive. Something we really have to get on top of as well, because obviously as the world gets incrementally hotter each year, the demand for air conditioning is only going to keep spiralling. So we've got to fix that as soon as possible, don't we? Completely. Okay, Kim, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Um, If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please watch this space for future episodes and check out our website at eia-international.org to find out more about our work. Thank you for joining us and wherever you are, stay safe out there.